And if you'd like, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter 2. We're in a series looking at First Peter. If you do not know where that book's at, uh, if you need a Bible, first of all, let's start there. Um, raise your hand. We'd have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Secondly, if you have no idea where that book's at, it's fine to look in the table of contents. It's all good. It's all good. So this has been a teaching through this. Uh, we got feedback. Am I good? Should I talk? Okay, we're good. Um, looking at this bigger subject matter of how to be faithful to Jesus, even in the midst of a culture that keeps pushing back, that's hostile, does not really welcome um, the belief system of Christianity, the life of Jesus, um, it's in many ways contradictory to it. So the big question is, is uh, that they were wrestling with is how do we keep ourselves committed and faithful to God, even within the midst of this culture. And we've been saying all along that this is really pertinent to you and I, because this is exactly where you and I find ourselves, is really trying to make sense of how do the claims of Jesus translate or carry over into today, and more importantly, how do we actually live according to them in in a way that is consistent, that's right, that's righteous, that's doing good in this culture, in our lives. And that's what Peter is really trying to pass along information for them to do so. So, what I want to do right now is I want to read the passage. Uh, we're going to pick it up at First Peter chapter 2, verse 20, and then I'm going to go down to about verse 25, and we'll probably get through the majority of this today, and what we don't get through today, we'll kind of do what we've been doing on repeat, which is just postponing the rest of it for the following week, and that's just kind of what we've been doing. Like, that's what we do as a church, is we just take scripture, because we, at the end of the day, look guys, we realize that for me, I have extremely limited information to give you that's of any value whatsoever to your life. For me personally, like I have, you know, 51 years old. I have 50 years of information that I've learned over the years. But that, at the end of the day, that's incomparable to what scripture offers and how people have found and anchored themselves into the historical story of the Bible. And that's exactly what Peter's doing, and that's what we're trying to do as well, is to, rather than just simply uh, subjecting ourselves to the opinions of human beings, which, look, let's be straight up honest, that's all that is available right now on TikTok, on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, is, on the news, is just opinions of human beings. All of that of which is time-stamped, which means it may offer some value, but at some point that value will run short and it will fail. And so when it fails, then what? And you got to find or invent some form of new information in order to live by it. What we're trying to do is say, let's anchor ourselves into this historic Christian gospel message that thousands of people over the years, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have given themselves to and have found God faithful all the way through it. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 20. You can follow along if you would like. It says this, but if you do good and you suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, when he was reviled, so he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Verse 24 and 25. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were once like sheep straying, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer 
over your souls. And this is the word of the Lord. And I want to pray right now, and we're going to just jump in to begin to look at this. So God, right now, uh, we bring our hearts, our hopes, our dashed dreams, our wounds, our pains, our anxieties, our mountain peaks and our valleys to you, and we just lay them all at your feet. And God, we ask you right now that you would just uh, transform and reshape our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to become like you. Uh, God, we realize that there are elements and currents in this world that are attempting to shape us. And God, we want to not necessarily be shaped by information that is maybe has currency today, but tomorrow uh, is bankrupt. We want to be shaped by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, through the scriptures. Um, so God, right now, we pray that you would just breathe over us and give us life, transform us. God, take, take those areas in our lives that are prone towards death and dryness, and God, give us new life, we pray. And we just commit this time in your hands. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Would you all grab a seat? So last week, we looked at kind of this idea of suffering well. We kind of began to ask this question, what does it look like to really suffer well? I think that's the big idea that Peter's trying to carry us through, is, is how do we suffer well? Um, one of the things, um, the, the older I've gotten, the more I've just had dialogues with, I don't know, lots of people throughout life and just been um, acquainted with different people's stories. One thing I've realized, I don't care who you are. I don't care what race you are. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care with the, whether or not you are a deeply devoted follower of Jesus or you're straight up atheist. It does not matter who you are, what social economic scale you find yourself in, whether or not you have a management job, middle management job, or you're the assistant to the assistant manager. It doesn't matter who you are or what you possess in this life. Every one of you, we suffer. You just, you can't outflank suffering. It's part of this life. Um, what the Christian story offers is, is not just um, the, the fact that, hey, suffering is going to happen, but it offers the fact that suffering can be redeemed. That suffering can be redeemed. In other words, we can, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of challenges and hardships, discover God's grace, God's presence. And then that begins to not only give us endurance and help in the midst of that suffering, but also gives us hope. And um, there are a handful of people in our church right now. They have parents that are that are either passed away or in a very state of, of dying. It's surprising to me just how many are going through incredible forms of suffering. Some are suffering not so well. Others are suffering really well. And in fact, I would say that probably most of the people that I know actually are really suffering really well in the face of incredible opposition and hardships. And the question is, how does one suffer well? That's the question I think I want to really begin to tackle that. I think Peter wants us to understand and imbibe. And I think there's some principles that Peter gives to us that help us to know how to suffer well. So on the slides, I want to just show you real quickly kind of where we've been last week is, number one, we saw last week, the way of suffering well, I think, first of all, way that we can do this is by being anchored to God's favor. We saw we in verse 20, just this idea that God has deep favor for those when, even though we suffer, even though we find ourselves maybe faced with an injustice, and yet in the midst of that injustice, we act in a way that's not just simply retaliatory. 
not violence for violence, not bloodshed for bloodshed. All of those things that kind of come default by way of just being human being. So if you want to listen to that message last week, I would just recommend you go check that out. Today I want to jump in and begin to take a look at just really this idea of Jesus being an example. Next week we'll take a look at him as being sacrificed as well as shepherd. Again, like I told you, we will get to that. I read the passage, but we'll get to that next week mainly. So I want to begin to just jump into this idea of him being an example. And what I want to do is I want to just really look at three things and we'll wrap it up. The first thing I really want to think about is, uh, before we even jump into what it looks like to suffer well, I want to just, by way of sort of uh, repeat, look at what we saw last week. What, what does suffering poorly look like, or what is an alternative to suffering well? Um, so one of the things I said last week, not suffering well, actually looks like, and I'm just going to read what I had written, because I, I think it kind of describes where I'm going with this, that this drift toward what we described A.W. Tozer was a writer who had kind of used this analogy of self-sins, and I'm borrowing that same idea. But this drift towards self-sins, which I'll say in a second, each of which is a black hole, lacking long-term sustainability and often costing you peace, contentment, joy, and oftentimes even relationships. So listen to some of these self-sins that A.W. Tozer points out, self-righteousness, which is this idea basically thinking I'm greater, I have the capacity, I can figure this out on my own. It's kind of the American spirit that's imbibed in this, which is the I will pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It doesn't matter what the opposition, doesn't matter how large or huge or monumental the challenges are, I will I will do it myself. It's, it is self-righteousness. And there's, there's nothing wrong with kind of having grit. I want to be real, real careful about this. If that's kind of like you, you're like, man, I came with, into this world with nothing, and now I've made something of myself. Wonderful. That's awesome. I, I think, like I said, I think it works. However, it does lack long-term sustainability, because what happens if you get cancer? What happens if you're in a car accident and become paraplegic? Again, it's like, whoa, it's like gnarly doom and gloom. But the facts are there on the ground, that there are challenges that can sometimes come against us. So self-righteousness only takes you so far, and at some point, it drops you off. It doesn't have long-term sustainability. Um, self-pity, we looked, again, a little bit at this as well. I'm not going to go into all these, but self-pity is just kind of this notion that I deserve more. I expect more. I've worked hard for something, and I've not gotten it. And this, this is black hole of discontentment and frustration and anxiety and angst that oftentimes can just grip our soul. If you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm it doesn't redeem the problem. It oftentimes, it's one of the reasons why, if you've ever discovered in life, there are sometimes people that can face uh, the same type of circumstance. Two different types of people face the same type of circumstance. Let's say, for example, hypothetically cancer. Like one, on the other hand of cancer, they come out and they're bitter and angry and frustrated and discontent and just filled. And then some would look at that and just be like, well, that's justified because they didn't deserve that. And agreed. I agree. They did not deserve that. But on the other hand, you see others that come out on the other side. And there's a sensitivity and a softness and a compassion and a kindness and an empathy towards other people that are going through it. And there's a way in which you're wanting to try to create support groups and join those support groups and help those that are in those support groups and figure out ways to create meal trains because they're using the pain and the suffering that they've gone through to come out the other end um, a different type of person. And this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm trying to describe is that there is a way to suffer well, which Again, we'll look at, and then there's a way to not suffer well, which leads to these. So let's jump into kind of the passages that we just read, and hopefully it will bring some encouragement to you. So I want to really just look at three things. Number one is this sort of a, a freebie as we begin to look at this, and this really is not necessarily focused on any particular text. Next slide. Is what we see in terms of suffering well is, first of all, I notice Peter 
um, he has this deep knowledge of the scripture. So I'll give you an example of this. What we just read by way of these uh, series of passages, um, I don't know if you knew this or not, or if you have a good Bible that might have some marginal notes and whatnot, you might have found that within the marginal notes, it might say something like, you know, Isaiah 53, and this passage says Isaiah 53, verse whatever. Um, in other words, it's a reference to a Really important passage of scripture, which we will look at more in depth next week. But the passage, the big idea that I want for us to think about is that when Peter's writing this, he's writing this thoroughly uh, saturated and steeped with scripture. He knows the scripture. Let me, let me read you an example of this. There's a guy by the name of Norm um, Hillier. He says this, Peter weaves Isaiah's words so naturally into what he writes, it must have been the subject of much meditation on his part as he pondered the meaning of the death of Christ. He was so absorbed with the prophet's message that it molded his own thinking. He uses Isaiah's language without seeing any need to offer readers an explanation. It also suggests that early Christians in general uh, habitually applied Isaiah 53 to the suffering and death of Jesus. So the point that I would make is this. I mean, in some ways, as we read this, Peter is not like, as he's talking or writing this out, he's not saying, hey guys, by the way, this is Isaiah 53 that I'm quoting. He just drops it in there. Some would even say, like, again, maybe if it was modern, he'd be like, he's plagiarizing. He didn't, like, give reference to Isaiah. But the fact of the matter is, is one thing I want to just step away from the passage and look at is that Peter was so steeped in the scripture, in the story of the scripture. It was just a part of his thinking, part of his life. So when he's thinking about who is Jesus, and more importantly, when he's trying to convey to these followers of Jesus and trying to encourage them in their life, the only thing that he can do is just be informed by this Old Testament passage that was written some 600 plus years even before Peter lived. But it was so part of the storyline of Peter that he's able to just deposit this information into their life. This is what's really important. This is what I want to think, uh, think first of all, in terms of this idea. What story do you live by? What story is feeding you? We, we as human beings, we are our meaning junkies, meaning we have to have meaning in our lives. If we live our lives and there is not purpose or meaningfulness within our lives, what we do is we end up spinning our wheels. We find ourselves filled with anxiety. We find ourselves filled with frustration or there's this deep ang- uh, angst inside of our soul that oftentimes we turn to all sorts of other means. It's one of the reasons why I think I would even suggest that our culture today, especially younger generation, the social media world offers this, this at least It doesn't offer answers to the bigger questions of life, but what it does do is it at least offers a distraction from the fact that they're not there. Does that make sense? In other words, if you are going through your life, you're like, I had no idea. If someone were to ask you, what is your life about? What are you doing that's meaningful and purposeful in life? And if your answer to that is, I I don't know. I'm not married. I want to be married. I don't have kids. I want to have kids. I went to school for a job, but I still don't have a job. I don't know what life is all about. Well, right now, in our culture, we have these means by which can, can satisfy the ache inside of the absence of meaning. And it, it becomes this black hole where we just degenerate down into. And what I would suggest to you is that's, that's not just benign activity. That's a liturgy. It's an act of worship, if I can put it this way. The, the act of consistently, continually scrolling through your phone, ingesting the messages, the stories, the other people's experiences of life. It's shaping you. You're becoming a certain type of person. 
The question is, is what type of person are you becoming? Is the type of person you're becoming one that is able to sustain pain and hardship when it comes? Or is it one when it comes, you just crumple? And this is what I would suggest to you. The, the scripture actually offers a sustainable narrative that if you build your life on that, it will carry you. I'll give you an example. Two, by the way. One is a personal, but the other is a bigger one. But uh, several years ago, some of you guys know, I've told you stories of this, that uh, I had come down with some sort of issue with my throat, and it was not good, and uh, my entire like career and life was basically on the line. I needed to get throat, uh, surgery in my throat, and it was some just bad stuff that was going on. At that point, I didn't know if it was cancer, if it was cancer, uh, when they cut stuff away. I mean, it's my throat. It's my vocal cords. So, like, I talk for a living. I talk to people for a living. Even if I'm not preaching, I'm still talking to people. The fact of the matter is just like, if I cannot talk, or if somehow the you know, surgery when he's done with my throat, my voice sounds horrendous. I don't want to talk because I don't want to listen to myself anymore. The fact of the matter is, is like, I have this existential crisis. And I remember it was a really exceptionally dark season. So dark. Like, I remember going out for these long walks and just the, 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 the darkness was so thick that I just would go for walks after hour after hour, just like wrestling through God, these questions, the scripture clinging to it. I just remember reading the Psalms and just like, just meditating upon these things and realizing one moment, it just kind of struck me like what I'm praying right now by way of reading through these Psalms has been prayed through and read through and held onto by hundreds, if not thousands of people over the past several thousand years. And the very same psalms that I'm clinging to for life have actually been the source or a tool for help for so many other people as they are helping me now. And I just remember at one point just thinking, man, I'm thankful. I had the scriptures to wrestle with. If I didn't, if all I had was like, you know, TikTok videos and create challenges to kind of watch, like somehow kill my time. I mean, just what a miserable existence. That, that's, that does not do anything to inject me or my life with meaning beyond the suffering that I'm facing in this moment right now. And the point that I would want to encourage you with is Peter, for him to be able to pull from this Isaiah passage and just simply inject it into the story about suffering definitely shows the fact that Peter had a habit or a practice of regularly reading scripture, of knowing the scripture so well that when he was suffering, he was just able to call these things to mind. Okay, next story. Right now, right now, in, I mean, we're talking real time, in Afghanistan, the second fastest growing church in the world are Afghanistani people. They're not having worship services right now, by the way. Not like this, at least. No one's singing. No one's like throwing down great harmonies or playing guitar riffs. No one's got like laser shows blasting. No one's got like the, the smoke machine, like making the service like absolutely fantastic. There's no celebrity preachers going on right now. Nobody's trying to look all cool and just do social networking at church. None of that's happening. Well, I'll tell you what is happening right now. Right now, if they had not already had their Bibles confiscated, what little of the Bible they know, they're coming together as best and as much, as carefully as they can to remember what passages have been there to have, that have offered sustainable hope to thousands of other people in years past. Those are the things that they're clinging to right this very moment in the midst of their own existential threat. So I just say all of that, first of all, just kind of point out, what, what are you basing your life on? What narrative 
Because again, like I said, if the scripture is not actively shaping your life or you're not attaching or fixing your life to the story of the scripture, trust me, I promise you, there are other stories that are seeking to usurp control over your life and they become the main storylines of your life. And again, I want to be really clear on this. Not all stories end the same. Not all stories carry the same sustainability. Not all stories will provide and infuse you with meaning as the story of the scripture. So I just say that to just think about right now how to maybe even implement practices or habits within your life that bring the scripture into your life daily. If you want more information on that, I'm happy to talk with you, talk about some practices that I've learned over the years that may be beneficial, uh, but I'm not going to divulge them all right now. But if you have questions about about that, please talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to help um, give you some pointers and thoughts and ideas that I've best practices and I've gone through myself. Second thing I want to jump into is to take a look at this idea of Jesus's example. And this is what we see here in the passage. Is our thing not working? Oh, it's working. Good. Yes. So suffering will happen when we see Jesus in his living and dying example. And this is exactly what Peter then now moves into. And what I want to do right now is I just want to reread the passage again. And we'll just read through it slowly. I'll make some observations and we'll just move on to the final point. So let's read this together. You won't need to, don't read it out loud. I'll just read it. So for to this, you have been called to what? As again, he's a reference back to the prior statement to suffering. Well, to this, you've been called. How do we suffer well? He goes on. He says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So first of all, Peter wants us to understand that Jesus himself in his life, as well as his death, suffered well. I want to make a real quick point because the idea of Jesus being an example is important. Jesus being an example is, by, I want to be, again, really clear. His example is not what ultimately saves us. It's the sacrifice that saves us. We'll get to that more next week. Jesus' example is important for us, though. And I would even say that if Jesus is only your example, meaning he's not, first of all, your savior, if to maybe restate that, if you don't look at Jesus in a perspective that says, oh my gosh, I, my heart is filled with gratitude and love and thankfulness to him for all that he's done for me. If that type of transaction or relationship has not been developed, um, it's, it's possible Jesus may be nothing more for you than like what the Buddha is for a lot of people. He's just an example or, you know, a life coach for some people or like a, like a Tony Robbins, you know, he's a really great motivational speaker. He can get things done. He's powerful. He does amazing things. He helps people. He's like an Oprah Winfrey um, character. But the fact of the matter is if that's all that Jesus is, is nothing more than an example. At some point that will fail you. Here's why. Because if all Jesus is an example, at some point we will step back and look at our lives and be like, my life does not line up with Jesus. Jesus is an example crushes me because I cannot live up to his example. I fail every single time. That's why I would say, first and foremost, if Jesus is nothing more than just an example, life coach, friend, helper, good model, role model, then at some point it will fail. But what I want to do now is kind of circle back and say he is more than just uh, an example. He is ultimately the savior, but he's not less than an example. So Peter appeals to Jesus' life and death and says, as Jesus lived and Jesus died, he becomes this example of what suffering could look like. If you want to think of it this way, he's a schematic or he's a template. You can look at the way that Jesus did this and realize it's, there's beauty in it. This is the big idea that I think that Peter's pointing to is that Christianity is not just functional. Please understand this. It's beautiful. It's 
beautiful. Honestly, I, I, think, I think in a lot of ways, the church, Christianity, over the past 50 years, has become all about functionality. How can we get it done? How can we get the great, great commission taken care of? How can we get people saved and brought into the church or into this organization? How can we raise money for this cause and that cause? And a lot, there's a lot of functionality. But even beyond functionality, Jesus is beautiful. As we just step back and look at him, he captures us. I mean, guys, I promise you, if you look around the world today, there's a lot of ugliness. But at the same time, I think we'd all agree. I mean, we live, we live in paradise, kind of, close to it, closest thing to it, right? So even ugliness is punctuated by beauty. The question is, where does that beauty come from? That beauty has to have a source. What Scripture tells us is that in the story, that all of the beauty that we see ultimately follows upstream to the very beauty of God, that everything that Jesus does is beautiful. Why is that important? Because we need beauty. Beauty provides a sense of meaning and, and worth and purpose. When we see things that are beautiful, we want in on that project. This is the whole source of the gospel. I would even argue it's one of the reasons why we tend to turn towards all forms of idolatry is we're captivated by beauty in various forms, in various degenerated forms. And it sucks us in. We become enchanted by it. But the gospel offers the, the genuine source of beauty. So what I want to do is I want to go back to the passage and just take a look at some other things as we see this. He tells us in verse 22 that Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. So the big idea that I think is conveying to us is that even though Jesus was berated and put down and mocked, it's what we see in his dying. People were putting him down, making fun of him. They were slapping him on the face. And putting a bag, literally a bag, over his head and then hitting him on the face and saying, prophesy to us. If you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. I mean, imagine that on the cross. Again, the whole idea of crucifixion was not simply just to execute a prisoner. It was to execute a prisoner with a specific aim in mind. The aim in mind was to provide the most amount of shaming of that individual as possible. And, and so imagine uh, Jesus on the cross. And again, I know a lot of times our, 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 our art portrays Jesus wearing some sort of like a loincloth. Jesus probably would have been naked, just straight up naked. People would have been walking by, making fun of his nakedness, his body parts, his genitals. He probably would have been defecating himself. This is Jesus on the cross. The big idea is shame. People were laughing at him, mocking him, shaming him, saying to him, look, you saved other people. You provided miracles for these other people. You fed other people. You yourself can't even help yourself. Why don't you come down from the cross? If you are indeed who you claim to be, king, save yourself. And yet it says he committed no sin. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. And this is what Peter's saying, like, as he thinks about, as he's meditated upon, as he no doubt sat under the cross and watched the circumstances that Jesus was going through and enduring, he realizes this king that he has given himself to has not been subject to firing back with vengeance. I mean, that alone, when I think about that, absolutely throttles me. Because that's not me. I don't do that. I don't do that. Often, I mean, I don't even do that a fraction of the time that I want to be able to do that because it's beautiful, but I don't do that. 
And again, that's why I say if Jesus is nothing more than an example, then that example right there, I begin to feel the weight of that on my shoulders, on my chest, begin to feel bearing down on me like, you're not doing that. You're not doing that well. Look at how you talk to your wife and your children and the things that you had said and the way that you acted and the temperament that you have and the impatience that you have when you're driving. And I was just reminded gently by my wife about that. And it's, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it, but it's there. I have to face it. It's there. I can confront it. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is far more than an example. But even as an example, if I can just look at the beauty of Jesus in his example, it does something to my heart. Verse 23 says, and when he reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the judge or the one who judges justly. So with that, I want to kind of move on to the very next thing again as we begin to wrap up and think about how to suffer well. Number one, we think of it in terms of finding yourself in a story. What story? The story of scripture ultimately is the most sustainable story. I would say find yourself in that. If you have not found yourself in the story of scripture, wrestle with the scripture. There are other stories right now I absolutely promise you that are shaping you. Promise you shaping. If you don't know what those stories are, ask someone who loves you, ask someone who's close to you to just in a moment of transparency say, hey, I'm not really sure what other influences might be in my life. I'm not even aware of it because it's kind of like the water I swim in just any more than a fish is not aware of its surroundings, of its wetness. I might not be aware of the stories that are influencing me. Can you help me understand what the stories are that are influencing me? Can you see them? Secondly is Jesus as our example. As we begin to see his example, I think it, it gives us a schematic, a picture of what beauty, true beauty can ultimately look like and that beauty if anything it compels me to say i want to do better i want to suffer well because i know it's possible i know it's possible i watched it in the life of my savior jesus and then lastly is this most important one in verse 23 it says uh it jesus guides us to the one who judges justly just again listen to this passage again um next slide as he goes on in summarizing this he says when he reviled when he was reviled, sorry, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But, this big but is really important, right? Big but. Um, you can have it up if you want, but don't. Um, it's no need to go off track here. But the idea, focus on the buts in the scripture. They're, they're important. They, they, they mark a change or transition. They're, they're important because they identify there's a transition. Something is going one way, and yet that but begins to show us oh, going in a different direction. But... When he con- but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So as I think about this, that Jesus ultimately says, look, guys, as you suffer, when you suffer, one of the reasons why you can withhold yourself from acting in ways that are responsive, purely responsive. In other words, those self types of sins that I said can oftentimes become the default nature of our hearts. What Peter, I think, is saying is that the reason why you can avoid those is because ultimately at the very end of it all, you have a God who will judge justly. And here's what I mean. When we face injustices, and we've all had moments where we face various forms of injustices, right? Maybe not as intense as injustices that might be going on in Afghanistan or people that have faced even throughout the past several hundred years, even racial type of, types of injustices, um, whatever. I mean, you can fill in the blank. But the point that I'd make is this is that all of us, at some point, we can think of stories in our lives right now, maybe, that we would look at and say, I'm not being treated the way I wish, the way that I should be treated right now. 
I'm not being given the promotion that I think I should be given. I'm not being given the raise that I think I should be given. I'm not being given the job that I worked really hard in order to be able to get. I'm not being able to be given the, the position in my workplace, even though I've gone to school and I've earned my degree and I've taken my hard knocks for all these things. I've not been given all these things. I, I even talk with people who have said I've worked really hard to keep myself, you know, in a, in a place where I'm, I'm godly and I still have not been given a spouse. And it's frustrating. I feel like I'm being handed an injustice. We all can think of various forms of injustices that we have gone through, things that we will just look at and step back and say, it's not fair. And what Peter's suggesting is that when those types of circumstances happen, we can ultimately entrust ourselves to the one who at the end of things, not only sees all things, but promises, promises to make it all right. I want to read a quote to you from a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf. Some of you may have heard of him before. I've read quotes from him before, but it's out of a book that he's written called Exclusion and Embrace. A quick uh, backstory on him. He was a scholar, theologian. He was living in the former Yugoslavia, um, and he watched his entire country literally implode and divide. And if you're familiar with that, I think it was like during the 90s or something like, something like that, like major, major civil war. A lot of people died, and it was, it was a horrific circumstance that took place. Um, and he was, he was all part of that. Um, Here's what he says. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence, because he's basically looking at it, said, how do you act as a follower of Jesus in a way that's nonviolent? It's non, non-retaliatory in a way of, you know, anger for anger, vengeance for vengeance, blood for blood. And I, I want to pause real quick and just say, um, am I against intervention in terms of, you know, police force or, you know, armed forces? No. Let them do their job. I hope they do their job well, and I hope they do it justly, and I hope they take care of threats that are going to be destructive to the promotion of life. Absolutely, 100%, I'm for that. But the point that I want to make is this, is I want to move on. How does a Christian react and live? How does a Christian in day-to-day life try to embody the gospel? And this is where I think Marisol Wolf is kind of circling back. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. You hear that? A belief. Theological. Theologically, do you have a belief that at some point there is, a, there is a judge of the universe that will somehow step in one day and be the final arbitrator? That's what he says. And then he goes on to say, he says, though I know it will be unpopular to many people in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been plundered, burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have been, had their throats slit. Your point to them We should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today. Listen, this is, I think, a really important sentence. Violence thrives today secretly, nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and not to make a final end of violence, that God is not worthy of worship. When we secretly nurture this idea that either God is powerless or God is apathetic, our only recourse is that I have to do something about an injustice. You understand that, right? I have to step in. I have to flex my power. I have to show them who's boss. The problem is, is that your idea of vengeance is inconsistent with God's idea of vengeance. Your idea of vengeance, my idea of vengeance, I'll throw myself in there as well, will only oftentimes go back to picking up a sword and lopping off people's ears and heads and just creating a cycle, 
of violence that never stops. Jesus offers a different way. And as you and I suffer and face challenges and hardships and injustices, I think there's a different way that we could live into those moments. And I think it all boils down to, are we willing to step back and allow God the space that God says, I occupy all things. Let me even occupy this space of injustice. Let me take up my throne in this moment, in this place of pain, in this place of hardship, in this place of injustice. Let me rule and reign here and begin to watch what God will do to bring about rightness. I'm done. How about we all stand? We're going to go to conclusion now as we partake of communion together. We have some bread elements in the front, the little cup on the top. Again, just by way, if you're new to this whole thing, there's a little wafer on the top. You can feel free to peel that off, and we'll partake together. In the back, if you are gluten-free or you do gluten-free Jesus, then he's right back there. You can take gluten-free Jesus. Um, We're going to sing a song together, and we are going to then finish by partaking of communion together. This is the way for us to kind of bring things to a final head to say Christianity ultimately at its end. Is about coming to a table, God welcoming us. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at in life, no matter how well you're handling injustices or no matter how poorly you're handling injustices, no matter how righteous you are or you think you are or how unrighteous you really are, it's the table that Jesus welcomes us at. No matter how well you are or no matter how broken or fragile you really truly are, to so come to that table and just find grace. That's the good news, by the way. That's the good news, that God accepts us. So I'm going to pray. We'll partake. You're more than welcome to come in the front, grab the elements or the back, I should say, and then we will partake together. So Jesus, right now, we come to you, and we ask you, God, for just your favor, your peace to rest upon us. God, if there's any here right now whose heart is going to be far from you, it feels jaded, it feels cold, it feels maybe even indifferent towards you, God, I pray that you, would, you, you have the power of thawing out our hearts, bringing life to things that are dead. Would you do that now, we pray. Mm-hmm.